we made this. Welcome everyone to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and television and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black. And I'm Sean Wilson. And in this episode, discussing the music of July into August of 2021, we will be talking about the work of composers including James Newton Howard, Bear McCreary, Ramin Jawadi and more. And... We're in the same room, we Sean. <laughs> Paris the thought. And what this used to be like back in BC before coronavirus. BC. <laughs> it is a bit BC. BC. <laughs> it's true, you know, it is a bit. Yeah. It, we, we, we were trying to figure out when we last did this, didn't we? And, and I think we last recorded together in the same room 2017 beginning in 2017 i think it was yeah so that predates yeah. this version of the podcast doesn't it i think that was when we did the composers which was our original 
Yes. 4A. And we've we, uh, we subsequently rebranded as Between the Notes. And yeah. blimey, have we gone through a lot of history. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, in, that, four in the four years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. But we're yeah. sitting in your uh, in your living room in Bristol in yeah. the UK. Because uh, I, I only live like a little bit further away. I live a little bit closer now, so it's easy for me to drive over. So it's great. It's great for us to be able to be in a room talking about this stuff. It's it's so great just having the organic interaction as as opposed to, you know, what we've become accustomed to over the last 18 mm. months, which is talking over screens, you know, talking remotely over phones mm. or, or whatever. This is just is just yeah, really, really nice. Yeah. So um yeah. And really excited about our, our playlist that we've got here. So yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. going to be going to be immense. I yeah, think. it's going to be good. And and we're now in our new format now, aren't we? Which yes. is the sort of monthly look through and and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, hopefully this will work quite well. Really, Excellent. Um, I think yeah. it will. But yeah. So have you uh, have you got any? Is there any like things happening with you in the in the film sc- film score world right now? Have you like seen anything or done anything or anything like that with this? kind of stuff um i'm in i've interviewed um a few people actually i mean i've had the privilege of interviewing quite a few people recently mm. um whose work i admire very much including howard shaw amazing um, amazing amazing who was wonderful um so yeah talked talk very very interestingly about how music and sound design are often melded in the mm. films that he works on which was very good interviewed emil mosseri recently who we talked about last time, yes. I think. Yeah. About, was it Minari? Minari. Was that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, he discussed his score for that and The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Oh, I love that. This wonderful composer. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very privileged to talk to these artists whose, whose work I admire and enjoy very much. I suppose on a personal level, um, I have just recently submitted the manuscript for my first book yes. on film music. Yay! <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We talked about that, didn't we, before, I think, yeah. yeah. And on that note, it's called, isn't it? Uh, well, it was. Uh, what What's happened is that um, the publisher has kind of amalgamated their ideas with my ideas, and we've agreed a title, which is um, The Sound of Cinema, uh, Film Music from the Silent Era to the Present Day. That, so this is the title. That's a good title. That is yeah, a good title. I'm, I'm very pleased with it. Yeah, I do... Yeah. I do kind of love and on that note I like don't give that one up because yeah, that is good but yeah. that is a good title the sound, the sound of cinema it's, it's easy to fly off the tongue as well so that's no great stuff yeah do we know when that's coming yet uh, I'm not sure yet I mean as we record this so the title has literally just been agreed within the last week or so I think I'm going to be getting a cover design in the next two to three months so my guess would probably be July, August next year, pretty much a year after I submitted yeah. the manuscript. But yeah, it takes people on a journey from silent and vaudeville through Max Steiner, Corn, Gold, Herman, all the way through the fifties and the sixties, through like John Williams, and then out into the era of Hans Zimmer and you know modern contemporary film scores. So I'm I'm really excited about it. It was a lot of fun. It's right, it gave me a lot of purpose during lockdown. Mm, yeah, I bet. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. I know that I know how that feels. I, I wrote a book during the first lockdown, so it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it brilliant how it just yeah. focuses your mind? It does. It? Like, it helped in know. a big way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we both we both use thank it's thanks to your recommendation I found the publisher McFarland. So thanks yeah. for that. No, <laughs> really my pleasure. I, I can't wait to read the book and, yeah. and we'll talk about it on this podcast as well. We'll do a special. Yeah. Um so yeah, it's really exciting. I'm so pleased. Can't wait. Cannot wait. Yeah. Um, on a, uh, for me, I uh, managed to go and see some live film music for the first time in, wow, probably two years now. Two years. I think so, because I, I think the last time I went was to see The Empire Strikes Back 
at the Royal Albert Hall with my friend Matt. Yeah. And they were supposed to be doing uh, Return of the Jedi. In that was that was 2019, late 2019. They were supposed to be doing Return, and I think they're doing Return of the Jedi this year if it's open and all that yeah. kind of thing. Which hopefully, I'll get to see. Yeah. Is um, that the Royal Albert? At the Royal Albert Hall, yeah. yeah. Showing of the film and then the score, but no, this was in my hometown of Devizes, uh, where they had an, an orchestra playing medleys of music. Mm. So they played Lord of the Rings. You mentioned Howard Shaw outdoors. So it was a lovely, it was a lovely mm. event, and uh, it was there, there was there was a real. I was I said to you earlier, I was very pleased about the Star Trek medley they did, which was the original Alexander Courage theme, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Generations, and I, I turned to my wife and I said, "This is deep cut." Like, this isn't what you normally get. Generations. Nobody's going to know that this is Dennis McCarthy's Dennis McCarthy's Generations we're hearing. <laughs> no one's going to know that unless you like film music. Yeah. So I was like, I was very chuffed with that. So it was good. It was not, and it was so nice to actually be in a venue, at a venue with people and hear film music again. It felt, it felt great. Even if it's different from the indoors. So the sound isn't quite as apex, I think, as you would get. Um, and I said to my wife as well, I think I've been a bit spoiled by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, because yeah. they are, they're like the top of their game, but it was great. It was great. They were called the Full Tone Orchestra and they were really good and they, they put a hell of a lot of gumption into it. So it was lovely. It was a lovely event. Nice spread of ages there, were there like a lot of oh, God. different people attending. Eight to eight, well, eight months up to 80. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it, had, it was a proper family event because there were other things going on as well. And, you know, it wasn't full of, you know, uh, film school nerds or anything but it definitely had or just the one <laughs> or do you, it just had me yeah just me uh, but it's that kind of thing that if if you I always think if you if you're exposing like children to this kind of music at an early age it's going to imprint on them a bit yes you know so I think there's not that's fantastic you know I mean one of the most magical things I've found about film music concerts is if you see the reaction of, of youngsters to it particularly if they bring out something like Pirates of the Caribbean which they did everyone was like oh yeah yeah exactly you're right yeah and Star Wars obviously they played all the hits you know they played Harry Potter as well and Jurassic yeah. Park, which I loved, you know. So. I, I, mean, I remember, I remember speaking to David Arnold about that. Um, David Arnold obviously worked on like Bond and, and Independence Day, and he said that yeah, that's the kind of music you need in that kind of context. Yeah. So, like people aren't interested in Revision Seven, Line Thirteen. You know, <laughs> people want big recognisable things mm. like the good, the bad and the ugly, Rocky. I mean did they did they do Rocky or anything? They didn't. Like they so, they did they uh, didn't do Good the Bad and the Ugly. They did like Magnificent Seven, the Dam yeah, Busters yeah. and stuff like that. Good the Bad and the Ugly might have been a bit instrumentally complicated to do Maybe. In, in that venue, but I mean fantastic they did the Magnificent Seven, yeah. yeah they did that. Yeah. yeah. So it was it was it was primarily populist. There wasn't anything in there that wasn't like of a well known movie. Mm. But then, you know, I, I I don't know if everyone would have known what the Deep Space Nine theme was from Star Trek, mm. you know? So there's little things in there where I was quite pleased. Yeah. But no, it's great. You're right. And it, it, it's it's getting those big themes, getting them into people's heads is no yeah. bad thing, really. So, yeah, great time. Really enjoyed that. And obviously, we've been listening to quite a lot of music for the conversation we're going to have about the sort of the music of, generally, the music of August. So I think we should start with one of the biggies this month, which is Jungle Cruise by James Newton Howard from the film um, starring The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, Emily Blunt, the big Disney, one of the big Disney releases of the summer, yeah. which is, I think, a very big adventure score of old. And I mean, the film itself is basically The Mummy, isn't it? The 1999 The yeah. Mummy, just remade effectively. Yeah. So did you feel the score itself was of a similar similar vein? 
Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, James Newton Howard is one of the old school. Yeah. Uh, he's he's a themes and melodies man. Although he has done a variety of different scores. I mean, I suppose the interesting thing is here is he has a long-standing relationship with Disney. He's done some of his finest scores for Disney. Think of Dinosaur, Maleficent. Uh, Atlantis, Treasure Planet, I mean, all very, various like, magical swashbuckling fantasy scores, and then that's obviously been parlayed into other James Newton Howard scores. You think of like the Fantastic Beasts franchise, he's now the mm. resident composer for that. He is one of the finest purveyors of that kind of very harmonic, harmonically, melodically led, rich, sort of theme led score. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting thing with this because I mean yeah you're right the comparison with the mummy and it's scored for, from Jerry Goldsmith I mean obviously there's a lot of John Williams in here yeah. I mean, a lot of Indiana Jones which is entirely appropriate um, for the stylistics of the film um, I mean the interesting thing is the cover of Metallica the mm. instrumental cover of Metallica which is I mean, I mean harmonically and acoustically it's very, it's very very good in the film it's quite baffling nothing else matters isn't it yeah that's right yeah, yeah. and it's like I don't know what I mean apparently that, that so I think Metallica were looking to get involved with someone from the production for quite a while and this was just the opportunity that landed and then it was a case of bringing James Newton and Howard in to adapt it that's kind of strange. I mean, um, you know, it kind of breaks up the flow. It certainly breaks up the flow of the film. It's like, okay, why am I listening to Metallica for a period Jungle Cruise movie based on a Disney theme park ride? I mean, there's just so many like, warring <laughs> I, elements there. I mean, I mean, that from what I remember of that song, it is quite slow and melodic. Yeah. In and it's not like a lot of the other thrashy sort of Metallica stuff that he's their best known for. But even so, it's a it is a bit weird, isn't it? Like mm. that it's and I, I I do remember I do remember watching it and thinking that that sounds familiar. And then afterwards, <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, yeah, nothing else matters. Strange choice. I mean, it's the first thing you hear in the film, and then yeah, there's a montage yeah. sequence later on set to it as well. But I mean, obviously, the the bulk of it is set to James Newton Howard's score, which is very very major key, lovely lovely fulsome resolutions in the brass and the strings and the woodwind section, lovely sense of movement. Mm. Um, there are multiple themes in it. I mean, maybe the themes aren't quite as delineated as perhaps they ought to be, although that's probably a fault of the film because the film becomes increasingly frenetic and incoherent and there's only so much a composer can do. I love the Tree of Life theme that he did, that surging choral theme, which yeah. reminds me a lot of like Lady in the Water and The Last Airbender, which are two like, masterful James Newhouse scores for terrible films. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. we talked about The Last Airbender oh, before. We yeah. Got it. <laughs> so, yeah, we should never speak of it again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, right. Um, but James Newton Howard is is brilliant. Um, I mean, I love the fact that Joan Collett, Sarah, the, the director, got him involved in Jungle Cruise. Whatever flaws the film possesses, I think the score hits exactly the right note of nostalgia. Um, and it's good to see him continuing his partnership with Disney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, 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 got, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought I, I didn't think it was like standout maybe to the point something like the Mummy score mm. was, the Jerry Goldsmith score. But I, I, and I don't know if a lot of it necessarily... Maybe it needs a couple of listens, because I don't know if a lot of it was some stuff that I would immediately remember like and recall but I don't know I, I, I did I did really enjoy it though I thought it, it fit the movie and it's very listenable outside of the movie which is you know the litmus test for that that some films in this this month are going to fail and some are going to pass I think yes. um, yeah. but uh, this one is a, this one's a pass this one is very nice to listen to and it's do you know what I was surprised by the film as well pleasantly surprised by that were you yeah 
Yeah. In that, I, I fully expect it to be a little bit, uh, you know. But I got, I had a whale well of a time. I really enjoyed it. As yeah. derivative as it yeah. is, that I still thought it was a, a load of fun. Well, somewhat ironically, I thought the first 20, 25 minutes were really good. And then as soon as they got on the river, it went down by the bows. <laughs> and it, and it, got, it got bogged down in backstory, way too many visual effects. And it, it swamps the, the best special effect is the chemistry between Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt. Mm. And it's like they didn't realise that. It's like, just drop all of the That's nonsense true. around the edge. Just let them do their thing because they've got good chemistry together. But James Newton Howard's score, I thought, was terrific. Yeah. And it, 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 it's exactly the right register for this kind of movie. It's the science kind of score that I like, yeah. not the old school adventure score from mm. like John Williams or Jerry Goss mm. the kind of scores that I grew up listening to in the 80s and the 90s so yeah so you're up for Desert Cruise Arctic Cruise because you know they're going to do them Sean Moon <laughs> Cruise are they going to do Booze Cruise with, <laughs> with, with Dwayne Johnson that would be really funny that's a spin off uh, there yeah, you go the boo- so, booze how has there never been a yeah, movie yeah, cool. like yeah. starring like some fat American comic called Booze Cruise. Booze Cruise. How has that never happened? <laughs> like, I, I'm yeah. astonished. Everyone heard it here. Yeah, there you yeah, go, yeah, right? Yeah, you heard yeah, it here yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one to start with. Yeah. Stillwater, then, the next one we're going to talk about, by uh, Michael Danner. This is for the Tom McCarthy, uh, Matt Damon. Matt Damon! <laughs> Sorry, we have to do that every time. Um, start. You know, I, I did that the other day when I mentioned this movie to my wife and she said, is that joke tired now? She said, is that, is that joke still going? What? I said, it will always go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the answer is no, it's not tired. <laughs> yeah, it's not. No, it's not thank you. It will never, never get tired. It will never tire. And I think Matt Damon himself finds it really, <laughs> find it really funny at the time and still finds it funny for the impression I get. Yeah, so, good, yeah. good on him. Yeah, good yeah. on him. Yeah. Bonus points there. Yeah. But um, yeah, this is uh, a, uh, a film that I admittedly I haven't seen yet. I don't know if you've managed to see I've it. Not, I've not seen it, unfortunately, no. So but at least we're on a level playing field. We're on a level earlier. level pegging field, yeah. but it's Matt Damon um, in southern France. He's an Oklahoman guy uh, visiting his imprisoned daughter uh, while, and then becomes involved with a, uh, a French theatre actress. So it's, it's a film that has kind of sort of passed everyone by a little bit, I think, really. But it's uh, composed by Michael Danner, who did Life of Pi. Um, and um, yeah, what did you make of this? I, I thought it was it was okay, but I don't know if it really blew me away. This one, it's it's introspective, isn't it? It's an introspective and doleful score. I mean, it's interesting you bring up Life of Pi. Michael Danner got the Oscar for that, and that's yeah. a, that's a really spiritually powerful, sort of philosophically interesting score for a brilliant film. I, mean, I haven't seen Stillwater. It's obviously got a contemporary decidedly non-fantastical angle to it unlike Life of Pi this is very I think this was inspired by the Amanda Knox um, story I I believe inspired by that to an extent Um, so one would expect a contemporaneous tone score and that's pretty much what you get you get a lot Mm. of emphasis on you know processed strings and prepared piano and acoustic guitar and yeah I mean there are ideas in it I don't know how memorable it is it's always a question with these kind of you know allegedly yeah, allegedly fact that it's an original screenplay but there there is the basis of some kind of factual element in the background of it how much do these films actually need music to propel them along mm. if they are attempting to root you in some kind of an objective reality wouldn't an overbearing score kind of pull you out of the reality of it um, again I've not seen the music in context on its own terms I think Michael Downer does a serviceable job with it 
Um, I don't know how much inspiration there was to actually come up with a truly great score for it. I mean, films like this have had great scores in the past. I don't know if this is necessarily one of them. Mm, no, I don't. It, it, it's interesting that he talked about how he wanted... Uh, apparently he wanted to convey the colours of Marseille music, which is where it's set. So a lot of North African influences, stringed instruments such as the Persian Comanche, the plucked Persian Lavta, sorry, uh, the Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern Oud and Canon. Darbuka drums as well. Now all these, you know, I might as well be talking, you know, space language, if I'm honest. <laughs> but I don't know yeah, what these are. Yeah. But it, they, but I, I appreciated some of the influences. That it's not just they didn't want just a country score because he obviously he's an Oklahoman, he's playing. Mm. So I think they wanted to just avoid something too heavily on the nose that was just, you know, I mean, that style. I, I, I will give it that. I think the ethnic influences are subtly done because I think one of, one of Michael Danner's best scores was I think it was the, he did the nativity story didn't he which had it which had obviously a, a very spiritual element to it but obviously had a suitably like middle eastern element to it I think incorporating some of those instruments that you just mentioned mm-hmm. he's very well versed in taking sort of um, ethnicity in music and doing he's done a lot of very interesting Celtic sort of scores I think with, with his brother like Jeff Danner as well mm-hmm. he, he is a very instrumentally diverse and very interesting um, composer. I mean, one of my favourite scores from Michael Danner was for that terrible Johnny Depp movie Transcendence from a few years ago. Oh God, yeah, that was a good score. The it was, film was awful. It was a terrible film, but the score had yeah. a very kind of sweeping, yeah, interesting, almost quasi-spiritual expansive air to it. And parts of Stillwater did remind me of that. Not as good as that, but it did remind me of that. It's, it's good to hear that this particular score is more nuanced than I'm than I gave it credit for when you listed off all those instruments mm. there. So. There, there is clearly a lot technically going on in it. Whether it, thematically it's all that memorable, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, but, and I, I, I fairly enjoyed it as a standard listen, but I do think that might it might work better with slightly better with the film. But it was okay. When you said the nativity story, then at first I thought, what nativity? The comedy film. From <laughs> I thought, like, did he score that? The, the one with Norman Martin Freeman. Yeah, we yeah, might. That had I, that yeah, had the sequel, uh, "Dude, Where's My Donkey?" Michael Michael Dan is scoring that would have been very very bringing this kind of profundity to this kind of completely idiotic like yeah a school set nativity so that that's something I would, I would quite like to see actually. would have been hilarious <laughs> I think yeah um, but yeah that's uh, I will watch that film fairly soon yeah. actually so it's in, potentially interesting and Michael Dan is one of those quite regular composers who doesn't really. You don't hear a lot about him or no. the bro- his brother, do you? They're kind of they they're quite workmanlike in many ways. Yeah. Um, do they really stand out to you necessarily? Does Michael Danner really stand out to you as a composer? I mean, yeah, he has the, he has done several very very, very impressive um, scores. I mean, he did a lot of work with Atom Goyen, although mm. I, I can't remember the last score that he did with Atom Goyen. Actually, I mean, the last high profile movie that I remember Michael Danner doing was I think it was Onward which he did with his brother oh yeah yeah, yeah. I thought that was okay that yeah, score. I didn't love the film but the score was alright yeah again I think it had a Celtic fairy tale yeah. influence to it I don't know how, how memorable it was mm. necessarily but I don't think the film itself was all that inspired by Pixar's standards but no, yeah I mean Michael same. Danner is one of those every now and then he'll Turn up and come up with something like Life of Pi. You think, oh mm. wow, that that that's really well. That's really good. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. We'll see what else he does. What comes next? Speaking of what comes next, let's talk about the last letter from your lover, um, which is the uh, British romantic drama um, scored by Daniel Hart, who is uh, a bit of a favourite, I think, particularly of yours. Yes. I, I, I like him as well. Um, but this uh, film stars Felicity Jones. 
uh, and Shailene Woodley amongst others. Um, and it's a uh, it's a romantic story um, set um, both in the modern day and the mid nineteen sixties. Uh, okay, two questions: Have you seen it? And what did you make? Of Daniel Hart's work on this. Uh, first thing, I haven't seen it. Same, um, same. So <laughs> I think this yeah. is one of those movies that's kind of got lost in the shuffle, isn't it? So yeah. it's one of those ones I need to catch up with. As far as Daniel Hart's music is concerned, I thought um, it's it's serviceably pleasant, and mm. there are um, appealing romantic notes and obviously notes of, of French culture in there. It's, it's a very harmonically pleasant score. It's. I feel it was fairly conservative by Daniel Hart standards. Mm. Not as fairly conservative. He's done some really, really interesting work. I mean, his work with David Lowry, which has covered the whole spectrum of genre. I mean, you go from bluegrass with Eight Men Body Saints to symphonic fantasy with Pete's Dragon to recently uh, the the score of his that's out now, out at the moment. That I find frankly more interesting than the last letter from your lover, which is the Green Knight. Yeah which we're now currently wait, awaiting a UK release for as far as the film is concerned because they the distributor pulled it from the UK schedule. Um, and yet, I, I, ironically, I interviewed Daniel Hart for that film, so I've heard the score for it. I've just not seen the score in context. Very... It's supposed to be coming to Amazon Prime, possibly, in the UK. Ah, interesting. Um, okay, yeah, don't know yeah. if that's 100% confirmed yet, but that's the rumour. Well, I hope so, because the score is fascinating. Mm. I know we're not here to talk about that score necessarily, but very, very interesting use of liturgical voices and, and vocal work. The last letter from your lover is, shows a completely different side to him, which I suppose demonstrates his versatility as a composer. Yeah. Um, the fact that he can flip between the score like this and the score like for the Green Knight practically in the same month, although obviously mm. they were recorded at different times. But, I mean, he, he is a very versatile composer. I mean, his lovely Philip Glass-esque work for A, uh, a Ghost Story, which is the David Lowry film, that's a brilliant score. It is a great score. It's really I agree. Yeah. Um, I love that film, generally, it's, as well. It's a real puzzler, isn't it? I mean, the score has got a very kind of elliptical, minimalist, like lots of strings, sustains, lots of eerie effects in it. It's very, very, very good. I mean, this... Last Letter from Your Lover is obviously not a film that demands that kind of score. No. Um, it's much more fulsome. Again, I don't know, like with a lot of scores I've heard lately, I don't know how much I remember of it yeah. after I heard it. Mm. It, it faded away a bit for me, this one, for money. Yeah. I mean, I when I spoke to Daniel Hart, who's brilliant, love, lovely, lovely person, I, I mentioned to him how much I loved his Peach Dragon score. And, um, yeah, it's it that that's just a really... That's just a really full-blooded throwback to the likes of James Horner, John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Alan mm. Silvestri. I think this this score for the last set of Me Lover kind of does what it needs to do, yeah, and then gets out. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's perfectly fine. That's all you can ask of film yeah. music sometimes. So. Well, that's it, and and I think it it will probably work perfectly well with the with the film, yeah. which, uh, but from all accounts, is fairly. Uh, it's all right. You know, it's, it, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's one of them. Well, yeah. it's Felicity Jones, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah, who's <laughs> that, that, superb you in could, everything, but yeah. but you could sum up the choices a lot of the time she makes as yeah. I think as fairly like, uh, you know, yeah, I, I yeah. think really. So like, yeah, uh, I, I, it was it was nice. It was nice. It's the kind of film score that you put your na- put what put on for your nan. Like, you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like your nan yeah. like that. Yeah, so it's just tuneful, isn't yeah. it? Is yeah, 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 tuneful. yeah, yeah. But yeah. not yeah. nothing really that stood out as particularly defining Daniel Hart, I think, or I like you say on a par with some of the more interesting stuff he's done. Like you know, we we talked briefly about the Green Knight and how that was really interesting in the last episode and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's not really gonna peak out in his in his um, filmography of scores, but 
It's fine. That's fine. That's okay. What about Free Guy then? From Christoph Beck. Now this is this has been one of the big hits of the summer, hasn't yes, it? Free Guy. Has, yeah. Starring I have seen this film. Um starring Ryan Reynolds uh, and Jodie Comer, amongst others, uh, directed by Sean Levy, and it's it is essentially kind of Grand Theft Auto the movie. <laughs> it, <laughs> is, way, it is practically pretty yeah. much, you know, yeah. um, with with shades of heavy, heavy shades of the Truman Show. It's like it's like, and I enjoyed it, but it's like a much less charmful, charming the Truman Show. This film, isn't it? It's you know, it's Ryan Reynolds. He's a character in a video game, a non-player character who realizes he's become self-aware, and then yeah. suddenly. It does a lot to it. it it's it's quite, it's a very busy, noisy film, which I didn't think was brilliant, but I enjoyed it. I had a good time in the cinema, and I liked Beck's music. I mean, he's he's one who I mean, this year he's 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 done quite a lot, hasn't he? He did he did One Division, yes, um, which we almost talked about in the last episode, but I think we 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 dropped off our top list just about. But um, that was quite a quite an impressive body of work he'd done over multiple episodes of that Marvel show. And he's, you know, he scored a lot of other things. I particularly liked his Ant-Man scores oh, they're, recently. They're terrific. Which are I mean, really good. His work on Frozen, the two Frozen, Frozen films, is, is wonderful as well. He's, yeah, really great. He's done some good stuff. So for you, is, is Free Guy and what he does here on a par with some of that? What did you make of it? No, I, I, I have to say, I, I don't think it is. Um, I think that all of the works you've decided there are genuinely great. And I think... Um, Christoph Beck has come into his own recently with those projects that he decided unfortunately I found the score for Free Guy a little bit underwhelming mm. by his standards um, I, I, again it was one of those things where like you know the scope of the movie the idea of that that comical divide between what's what's fancy what's reality mm. what's a video game what isn't I thought oh great you know you can get a composer as talented as Christoph Beck who can maybe really paint with lots of interesting variously or orchestral or synthetic colours and you get a bit of that but I was kind of like where's the theme you know I think a film like this needs a theme and I think there is a trace of one particularly in the relationship that Ryan Reynolds has with Jodie Comer it's kind of a quasi-romantic theme in there there are some interesting yeah. like SNES style loopy like modular <laughs> synth sounds which get completely drowned out in the film I mean I have to be honest when you describe the, the film as busy, busy is exactly what I thought, overly busy. Yeah. yeah. I, I was quite, I mean, I know this has been a big box office hit and it's gone down well with families. I found the film quite underwhelming, just frenetic for the sake of freneticism. Yeah, yeah. And I'm kind of like, I'm only 34, I thought maybe I'm getting a bit old. <laughs> <laughs> Am I going off films like this? Yeah. Because it just, it bombed right from uh, the opening frame, it bombarded it was, so much stuff. Yeah, it didn't stop, did it? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I get I get where you're coming from. Yeah. You know, I, I found it to be a very, it was just full of throwing all kinds of visuals, plot, plot ideas at you it was really in your face and and, and it, I mean Ryan Reynolds is basically playing Deadpool isn't he well, yeah, you know, yeah. Ass- a essentially down a watered yeah, down yeah, Deadpool yeah. you know it was so much and it was a bit much at times so yeah I, I'm with you I'm like it was and the score didn't like you say it should have had more motifs it should have had more themes to it it should have had more you know it, it had it had the scope to do all kinds of different things mm. but it feels like he doesn't quite get there and at times it's just drowned out by the sheer amount of noise coming I mean, out the, 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 the mixing in the film I thought was quite poor the, the sound mixing again this is so important I talk about this in, 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 the, in the book that I mentioned earlier the book that I've written so the success of a film score is so much dependent on the final mix and the final dub yeah. and this is a movie that is so aggressively kind of you know comically sort of overbearing 
that I really struggled to identify the score. I mean, the most the most interesting thing musically about the film is the use of fantasy by Mariah Carey, which was obviously in the oh, trailer. That uh, did yeah. not leave my brain yeah, yeah. for nearly that, two weeks. The, the, the sample of the Tom Tom Club, which I mean, yeah, oh my Mariah god, so yeah, so, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, I was it, I was losing my mind after a while. I was like, I, this needs to go, please, <laughs> please get out yeah. of my head. But isn't it interesting that both you and you and I found that more that was more of an earworm than the score? Yeah, which which is kind of I think I think kind of says a lot. But I mean, there's some fantastic when you listen if you listen to the score in its own terms. And I would encourage anyone interested in film music to listen to any score in isolation, mm. no matter what genre it is. There's some nuance. There's some fantastic aggressive writing for the brass section like some sort of flutter-toned brass and discordant brass sections. And there are some instant impressive bits, but it's kind of like there's nothing holding it together. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Christoph Beck has done better work elsewhere. And I do I agree. like him as a composer. But yeah, I mean, I don't know whether it was my slightly undercooked reaction to the movie that might mean that I didn't react to the score all that mm. well. I'm not sure. I don't know. I th- I think I think it will be. I don't think the score is the thing that stands out with mm. this in general. When which is a shame because I think it could have done. So yeah, mm, mixed bag. Yeah, mixed bag, yeah. and not Beck's best work. No, I think. This is Tony, Network Chief of We Made This. As you know, our podcast network brings together a brilliant assortment of talent who talk about all kinds of pop culture content. We'd love to keep the lights on a bit longer if you're able to support our network on Patreon. For just £2 a month, you get your name in lights on the website and the satisfaction of knowing you're helping us produce more great audio. And for £3 a month, You'll get your name in lights, but you'll also get access to an exclusive bi-monthly podcast from the We Made This Talent Pool on podcasting, pop culture, and you tell us. We'll take your suggestions. For less than the price of a coffee per month, you can help keep We Made This going. So just head to patreon.com forward slash we made this. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash we made this to get the ball rolling. Now... Back to your scheduled programming. So yeah, we we we're gonna we're gonna talk about a few others coming up. Zola by Michael Levy, The Courier, Masters of the Universe by Bear McCreary, a few other things, uh, and Suicide Squad. We're gonna finish with Suicide Squad by John Murphy. But before then, um, we're gonna do a couple of uh, various points. We're gonna do a couple of retro picks. We thought that might be a nice thing to throw in. So we've chosen a retro pick each. Uh, I'm gonna do mine a bit later. But mm. your one, Sean. Is of a uh, a classic late nineteen eighties movie. So what have you gone for? I've gone for Midnight Run, which is scored by uh, Danny Elfman for the Martin Brest movie uh, yeah. of the same name, um, which I haven't seen. Have you not seen Midnight Run? Sorry, right, I'm so sorry. I know, I know, no, no, I know what it, yeah. I know what it's about, but like, the, I'm I'm so sorry. Let me say outright, this film is a masterpiece. <laughs> I know everyone, this, everyone this, this has said this. It's an underseen masterpiece. I will watch it. Yeah, for me, it's one of the funniest films that's ever been made. Mm. Certainly, one of the most uproariously entertaining. Arguably, the best comedy that Robert De Niro has ever done. That's not the. Well, hang on, you, you tell me it's better than the War with Grandpa. <laughs> of course that's the second grandpa he did he also did the dirty grandpa dirty grandpa he? yeah so he's yeah. done two bad grandpa movies which kind of like, that's just like really depressing but no scrub all that from your mind or extras 
Actually, he was very. What is it? The girl from the pen? Can, 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 I, can, I, can I see this? <laughs> <laughs> Not like that. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's a good for the pen. Um, but I know what everyone would say is, well, it's better than Meet the Parents. Well, yeah, it is better than Meet the Parents because unlike in Meet the Parents, Robert De Niro is not in Midnight Run mugging for the camera, mm. which is always, I think, the key register of whether something's. But I don't like mugging. I don't like gurning. And yeah. Midnight Run is brilliant for how both Robert De Niro fashions marvellous chemistry with the late Charles Grodin, who mm. passed away earlier this year. They are so brilliant together. This film came out in 1988, and it's an early score for Danny Elfman. I mean, he'd only done, I think, um, Pee-wee's Big Adventure for Tim Burton and, um, I believe, Beetlejuice for Tim Burton. He hadn't yeah. done a lot of film music. This was before Batman. It was before the year yeah. before Batman. But Danny Elfman was, was known as, as a rock musician. He was with Oingo Boingo. Mm. Um, and that that sensibility underpins the score. It's yeah. basically a, a light rock, bluegrass, mm. jazz score, and it's absolutely brilliant. It is not like what you associate Danny Elfman with at all, it's, is it? It's not like you anything never else guess. in his career. No, 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 you'd never guess yeah. he, he did this. Apart from his Oingo Boingo like, sort of stuff, away, away from films, but it works so brilliantly. It gives the film a real swagger mm. and a real charisma. I mean, a lot of it, the main thing, which is just one of my, I listen to the main thing literally practically every day. Yeah. It sounds like it was Temp Trap maybe with Stevie Wonder with Superstition. I've kind of got that ah, okay. feeling about it. Mm. But that, that description there should give people an idea of what, what the instrumental underscore sounds yeah. like. But it's, it's yeah, you're right. It, it sounds completely unlike any Danny Elfman score. I mean, the, 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 the poignant thing that's teased out for the friendship between uh, Jonathan uh, and Jack, which is carried on this beautiful, like, bluesy piano, which has got a real emotional resonance to it, as these two guys who hate each other initially, mm. and then they bond throughout this crazy, like, cross-country road trip. They, they start to respect one another. And the way that Elfman's score is both not comically absurd and frenetic, yet also very, very poignant at the same time. And I, I, I love, I think this is one of Danny Elfman's great scores and hardly mm. anyone's heard it. Not enough mm. people have seen the film. <laughs> I can't remember. No, no, it's, it's <laughs> one of them that is, is, should be more, more populist than I think that it yeah. is because every, I've never heard anyone say that Midnight Run isn't great. Like it's, it's one of them films. So it, to my shame, I haven't seen it. I will. But I, I was, I was really, I really enjoyed the score, and I was, I was pleasantly surprised. I was like, Danny, it's not Danny. I was really surprised it was Danny Elfman, uh, in a good way. Yeah, so, no, no balletic strings, no, no choral, no, no choral work, no, 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 nothing like that. that. None it's, of the quirkiness that you know you normally get in a lot of the things he's done, particularly with Tim Burton. But like, exactly, yeah. I mean, it's great. There are so many themes. I mean, you've got themes that you've got. You've got the main theme. You've got the theme for Jack and Jonathan. You've got the theme for um, for Marvin. You know, that lovely kind of like sort of bluegrass, like sort of slightly yeah. theme like that. You've got the theme for, for for FBI agent Mosey, who keeps keeps arriving on the scene after Jack and Jack stolen his identity. It's like, you know, all, all you FBI agents named Mosley. <laughs> I'm Mosley. <laughs> he gets really wound up. By it. <laughs> it's just yeah, it's it's brilliant. I can't yeah. recommend the film. And score enough cool cool well there yeah. you go guys go and check it out it's all on spotify we'll obviously put it in the uh put some of it in the playlist that we'll put together yeah. um at the end but cool 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 I, I will do my retro choice a bit later but uh let's go back to talk about some some modern scores then so zola by michael levy this one is a curio i think on multiple levels this is a, a black comedy crime film based on a viral twitter thread by uh, someone called Isaiah Zola King and a resulting Rolling Stone article called Zola Tells All, the real story behind the greatest stripper saga ever tweeted. 
um, written by David Kushner. It's a film I haven't seen. I've heard a lot about it, that it's quite raw and raunchy, and it's it's turned a few heads. I don't think it's come out in the UK yet, actually. Um, or if it has, it's gone to like a stream in some. It, it, it was released in the UK. It was. Um, I, I have seen. It. I saw it at the at the Watershed Cinema. Ah, okay. I think it, got an art, it. it got an art house release, so relatively limited. Release. Right, limited release. Yeah. Okay. The score is by Michael Levy. Obviously, he's done some of the some of the things we've loved in the past. Things like Under the Skin, Jackie. Recently, did Monos, which yes. I, I I I didn't fall in love with Monos in quite the way a lot of other people did in terms of the score or the film, really. This was a hard listen, if I'm honest. Because mm. I, 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 I haven't seen the film. I mean, this is the for me, this is the an ultimate example, particularly this month, of you need to watch it with the film. Yes. <laughs> I mean, would you, would you agree? Yeah, I would. I mean, it, it, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Like, do, do you listen to film music out of context or do you listen to it in context? Do you do both? I mean, I would always say do both. Yeah. The question yeah. is, which one do you do first? I mean, I would always say, where possible, try and listen to it in context yeah. first. I, agree. Um, I, I would say yeah I mean the thing is with Zola it's it's it is I mean I don't know if you saw the Sean Baker movie Tangerine from a few years ago about about shot on the iPhone I, I, I've heard of it but I've not seen it no that that had quite a raw sort of streetwise sensibility as well I mean this is basically about exploitation of women in the sex industry um, but it, it's done through this kind of very very almost absurdist pastel coloured register that almost approximates the nature of like the very skewed fairy tale at times so mm. when you can bear that in mind the the tone of Mika Levy's music is with with these sort of pulses the like um, repeated like typical like, minimalist pulses of like chimes glockenspiel strings it has got a kind of deliberately balletic almost perversely innocent quality which meant to kind of offset the the, the, the terrible world in which the two central characters, um, uh, um, Zola and Stephanie, um, you know, played by um, Taylor Page and Riley Keough, find themselves. And the, the two central performances are brilliant. I mean, Riley Keough is quite brilliantly off-putting uh, mm. in this, like really, really, just really gobby, and just, but you know, and then and then Taylor Page Zola is, is, is this woman who finds herself in this ridiculous situation where you know she's convinced by Riley Keough's character right we've got to we've got to go to you know we've got to travel with strippers we've got to go to Florida you know we've got to get some money and then Coleman Domingo comes onto the scene as this really creepy pimp character so it's a movie that deals in very very unpleasant seedy areas I think Mm. it does it without being exploitative which I think is probably the most impressive thing about the movie it's never gratuitous or salacious but the score in the film lends the almost oddly innocent kind of detached almost kind of like yeah almost like comically absurdist air to it which i think in the film works very very well outside of the film yeah i can completely understand why you'd be bewildered by it because there are these repetitive like pulses and cycles of music that kind of go round and around loops of dialogue as well yes. at points yeah. The particular the, the what what stood out was obviously the harp because that was a major mm. force in this whole in this whole score, and she, uh, Michael Levy's talked about this, and she sees the film as as described as a hyper modernized take on timeless Greek fantasies, mm. which centre on epic journeys marked by adventure, bacchanal, greed, romance, and betrayal. She said the harp is very attached to things like glamour, heaven, bliss, innocence, purity, and ancient realms. The harp is so loaded; it's also very effeminate. It's a very interesting in that you know describing it in very lyrical terms like that 
and I, I can I, without seeing the film I understand what, where, she's, where she's coming from because the harp does have a lot of connotations in that way the impression I got of the film was a real juxtaposition of a kind of sweetness and a kind of horror and, and I don't know if that comes over in the film. For me, that came over in the score. Not horror as in the literal mm. horror movie sense, yeah. but more a a jagged, edgy darkness to it. And it just felt like... I, I, I don't know if it worked to convey a character or a mood or a, a sense of the film itself as something like Under the Skin or Jackie did, both of which I felt managed to underpin a lot of the emotional thread of what these characters were, were going through, what the film was trying to communicate. I didn't feel that with this score in isolation in the same way I did. And, but again, it might be one of those things, once I watch it with the film, I might I might listen to that score again separately and understand what what she's doing a bit more. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's... It, 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 yeah, I think you will understand it more when you hear the score in context. It's a score of mood. Yeah. It's not really a score of themes. It's not really a score that's identified with a particular character or a particular series of characters. It's more the... It, again, it's more of the how the characters are seeing the situation. The movie has got a kind of... like we, I mean, the, the, the story on which the, the film is based is, is quite astonishing like you can't believe that it's actually real yeah uh and there is there is that there is that notion of like you know like like hyper reality like you quoted Mika Levy there like you know truth is stranger than fiction I think she's definitely feeding off that yeah um and the characters are getting pulled into this kind of like rabbit hole of just just you know increasingly kind of surreal almost like surrealist in in a way and the, the the score kind of floats above and away from the action almost like it, commenting on it in a detached kind of way mm. rather than doing it with themes but then that's what Mika Levy does that's what she did so brilliantly with Under the Skin and, and Jackie as well yeah um, and, and Monos so you know technically accomplished if rather challenging although I mean harmonically this score is much more pleasant than a lot of the stuff somewhat ironically given the subject matter so it's <laughs> score mm. harmonically is more pleasant than a lot of the stuff she's done because Under the Skin is a very unpleasant score to listen to on its own terms as it should be that's not a criticism yeah that's the way it should be. But I, f- I found that really hypnotic to listen to. Like, mm. in many ways, that score. That really... Mm. I, f- I was able to listen to that separately, in a way. Even though it's not one you'd throw on to enjoy, in a sense. I was able to... And with Jackie, the same kind of thing. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to the film. I'm sure I will eventually, at some point. So I will revisit this, maybe, at that point, in terms of the score. I, I think it would... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, because you saw... Was the first time that you heard the scores for Jack Under the Skin and Jackie in the context of the movies? Is that the first time you heard them? I think it, it would have been for Under the Skin, but mm. I don't know if it was for Jackie. I feel like by that mm. point, I remembered thinking, oh, Michael Levy, I'm, I'm interested. So yeah, I, I, yeah. Either way, you, to be fair, that, that the Jackie score does work better when you've watched the film. I mean, there's no question about that. So... Yeah, so it's a funny one, this. I don't know whether... I I didn't like it necessarily, but then I don't know if I understand it. I I don't don't necessarily know if it's a score that's meant to be liked. I don't know if any of Mika Levy's scores are like that. (laughs) She she doesn't... I mean, she's not in it for that. I mean, she talked... That's a very interesting quote that you pulled out there. I never thought about it like that. Mm. So she's really eloquent in terms of, you know, expressing the inner voice of the music. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of her music is pure abstraction and mm. you know I think mm. it is important that 
its main function, as with all film music, is to serve the movie. Yeah. Um, it's just in this case, her, when when divorced from the imagery, her music perhaps doesn't work as well no. as other people's. But then that that's the you know that's a byproduct. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. criticize a composer for that. because no. they've done their main jobs. So. Absolutely. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. But, I look forward to seeing the film. All right. So next up, let's talk about the Courier. Which is a uh, a new film starring Humbleback Thumberdink, um, starring <laughs> or as um, as, as, Phil, as Philomena Kunk calls him on Charlie Brooker's screen white, um, Benlin Thundercrack. Benlin <laughs> <laughs> Thundercrack. I mean, make up your own combination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know yeah. what we, you yeah. know who we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, Just make yeah. up your own one, guys. Yeah. And he plays um, a British business, true story, a British businessman who um, helps MI6 penetrate the Soviet nuclear program during the Cold War, directed by Dominic Cook. And it has a score by Abel... Over to you, Sean. Uh, Kuzinovsky. Yeah, Kuzinovsky, thank you. Because there's always one composer that I can't pronounce. Kuzinovsky. Now, he's a great composer for me. I I think his work is often beautiful. And I I would say the same about The Courier, actually. I thought this was... Haven't seen the film yet. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Didn't really catch it in cinemas. It's just my kind of thing. I I get the feeling... I don't know if you've seen The Courier, but I get the feeling this is going to be a better score than the movie. I, I, do you know what I mean? Because this score was lovely. I thought. Yeah. I, again, I haven't. I haven't seen the film. We're not having a lot of luck actually. I think it shows the level of disruption that, every, that, mm. that, that everything's been through recently. It, yeah. It's almost like everything's kind of rushing at you at once, and you have to like run, run to well, catch up with. Also, everything. I'm not. But, I'm not. I'll be honest. I'm not going to the cinema for every film. Mm. Like, yeah, I, I'm going if I think it's going to be yeah. really worth it, and if I'm not sure what it's going to be like, it's just it's not. It's too much of a risk. Yes, I think, now. yeah, that, that, that's absolutely so, fair enough. Yeah, that's my excuse for your honour, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, I mean, I interviewed Abel Kuzinovsky about this score. Again, bearing in mind I haven't seen the film, and yeah, I think he's done some sublime work. I mean, Romeo and Juliet, his score for the Romeo and Juliet movie for I think about seven or eight years ago was mm. really beautifully romantic. He replaced James Horner on that, I believe. Oh. Um, he's done some really great work for Tom Ford with Nocturnal uh, Animals. Yes, with. That, ta- that table for 2Q at the end, mm. which is just brilliant. Yeah. I mean, one of the best examples of almost counterintuitively scoring. It's Amy Adams sat... I don't want to give the, the complete context away, if for those who haven't seen the movie. Amy Adams sat at a table waiting for someone, and the music... Corzinovsky's music catches this sense of dawning realization mm. that oh, that's the way that's the way things are going to go. Yeah. Um, in a monologue of the character, brilliant. One of the be- that's one of the best things that film music can do. I mean, he also worked on The Single Man. He's worked on Penny Dreadful on on TV, which is a lovely, lavish, mm. bombastic, like gothic, like horror horror score. Yeah. I mean, I must admit, I don't think this score is quite up to the level of his previous ones. I think there's a lot of quite functional underscore material which again bearing in mind I haven't seen the movie there's obviously a lot of internecine Cold War espionage skullduggery going on it felt like there was a lot of material that was just kind of just propelling characters presumably in various dialogue situations from one scene to the other there are waltzes that are reminiscent of Shostakovich and Prokofiev which that's great I mean using a waltz in the context of a Cold War movie, the fact that characters are doing this dance of espionage around each other, that works. And Korzeniowski told me that. He's like, yeah, that was very deliberate. Mm. Um, I think those sections are interesting. It doesn't have the highlights of something like, for me, like Nocturnal Animals, but I, it sounds like you disagree with me on this. It sounds uh, like you like it more. I don't know. I, I, I get where you're coming from with that. I think Nocturnal Animals really stood out as a very sort of darkly operatic piece of work, I, th- I thought. So I don't know if this is quite... 
there. But I, I, I think I appreciated quite an old-fashioned sort of romantic sensibility yeah. to to a score about this kind of subject matter. And you don't get a lot of them anymore, I don't think, really. And I, and I, I think I just appreciated the fact that this is essentially proper classical sort of music really for for a movie of this ilk and I, I i loved it i thought it was it was very nice to listen to independently and i thought that i don't know maybe, maybe that's just it you know if we're talking about a lot of these other scores they've been quite functional in many ways in terms of the film i thought this was just a really great piece of music to play for the most part and i think that's maybe why i don't know if thematically much stands out admittedly i don't know if I can really recall. I did like like you say. I did remember the waltzes particularly because I thought yeah. they were especially good. So there's nothing necessarily I think that would stand out. Maybe like Nocturnal Animals because as I, as you talk about that, I can hear some of the stuff from Nocturnal Animals in my head. Don't know if that's going to be the case with the Courier, but I just I just really enjoyed the experience of it as an independent thing. So, uh, I, yeah, I guess that's where I'm coming from with it. I don't think it's a great, but I do think it's very good. It's probably one of my favourite this month. Really? I mean, Krasinovsky has got a very, very elegant, sumptuous classicism, like an old-fashioned yeah. like, concert hall-style classicism. Yeah. In it. He doesn't get enough films to do, and the fact that he scored this in the first place is, I mean, credit to the filmmakers for getting him on board. Mm. Um, I, I think, you know, and again, you know, as with any great film score, is is at least 50% dependent on the collaboration with the director, um, and you've got to you've got to you've got to credit the director, you know, for eliciting a score like this. Mm. And yeah, I you know I thought it was it was functionally effective with some with some powerful moments. I mm. thought, um, whereas I thought Kozinovsky's other scores were more consistently kind of memorable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for, for yeah. me, that's fair um, enough. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, still a solid recommendation. And yeah. I recommend, like you, like you quite rightly said, if they've gone to town to actually get a classically inclined composer as opposed to someone who's just going to use a load of synths and loops and samples, yeah. which they could have done. I mean, it's yeah. a Cold War statement. They could have done that. Yeah. Um, fair play to the filmmakers for not doing that. No, so, no, it's yeah. good. It's nice nice to see that kind of thing happening. So, yeah, it's, it's a good... I look forward to the film as well. I think it will be a solid, you know, serviceable entry yeah. for Thimble Whack Crunch Crunch, you know? That's the thing out Lord of the Rings. <laughs> 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 you need to have a go. Have a go. Come on, uh, your own one off the top of your head. It's a, what? Um, what Ritalin cummerbund. <laughs> <laughs> Ritalin cummerbund. Enjoy this, guys. Have a go yourself at home. We're going to have to do one of these. This is going to become a running thing. Like every episode, we have to think about yeah. a new name. To be fair, though, he has so many films out. Yeah, does, so you yeah. know we probably will mention yeah. it on most week, most month anyway. Yeah, I mean he's, he's got Power of the Dog, the new Jane Campion, Thomas Savage yeah. adaptation, and I've read the book on that. Or he's going to play a nasty piece of work Is in he? that. That's a horrible character. That'll Ooh. be very interesting seeing him okay. do that. Yeah, cool. and he, and, he, so, and he's in he's in uh, Spider Man coming yes, up soon. Spider Man yes, Far is, yeah. far, uh, far from Home. So yeah. No Way Home. Sorry. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know we'll get we'll get plenty more um, Fumble Crunch or whatever it is <laughs> to come. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, this was a, sort of a late entry, sort of, we, we popped in a little bit more, but this is a t- our, our, our TV show this this month. We were going to talk potentially about Marvel's What If, but we've delayed that a little yeah. bit because we want to talk about some more of the, the episode scores in general. So, um, but Masters of the Universe Revelation uh, was one that you suggested we, we cover, which is the TV show, the animated TV show on Netflix, um, scored by Bear McCreary. I know next to nothing about this. Obviously, it's He-Man. But it's it, I, I 
because I don't really, I used to like that stuff when I was younger, but I've not really watched any of the of the of the new stuff. Much as I've heard it's good. But Bear McCreary is a favourite of ours. He's been on the podcast yes. in the in the past. And he was brilliant. Uh, he yeah. was so brilliant. He was great. And yeah. um he's he's done some fantastic stuff uh, uh, lately. This this I got I got I mean it probably fits and it's not necessarily indicative of him as a composer, but I got Godzilla vibes from this score. Yeah. That and and the fact he's sort of blossoming, isn't he, into this very powerful composer of grand themes, of grand ideas. And it's great to see, isn't it? Because he didn't start at that point, but no. he's really sort of, I thought this was really good. It's coming into his own, I think. I mean, he's, he started off probably most famously with The Walking Dead, didn't he? Which yeah. Which had a very murky, yeah. kind of gloomy soundscape, as you'd expect. But yeah, you're right. I mean, with with things like 10 Cloverfield Lane and Colossal and Godzilla. Brilliant. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, you know, and he talked all about that. I mean, people, we can probably actually share a link to the previous episode. Yeah, we should where, do. Where, where we talked to him about Godzilla. Yeah. But yeah, he's carrying the torch for these thematically rich, defiantly old school 70s, 80s fantasy mm. scores. Bearing in mind, I'm the one who recommended we talk about Master of the Universe Revelation. Surprise, surprise, I've not got around to it. Because <laughs> there have been other, <laughs> been other things going What, you on. haven't sat yeah. watching a oh, He-Man oh, animated yeah, show, know, Sean? What kind of 34-year-old man are you? <laughs> <laughs> a very, very poor, <laughs> a very underwhelming 34-year-old man. I've let my entire generation down. It's outrageous. I mean, the reason why I suggested this was because I saw that on film music message boards, a lot of people were talking about this back in mm. July. Like, wow, Bear McCreary has really put his contemporaries to shame with a rip-roaring thematically-led score. And I thought, okay, we've got to talk about that, regardless of whether we've seen the series or not. Yeah. And we should say it was developed by Kevin Smith. Um, okay. So, fair play. I mean, I don't know how instrumental Kevin Smith was in getting Bear McCreary on board. I mean, if he was, then, okay, Kevin Smith has obviously got a really good taste in film composers. Is this where we find out Bear McCreary's scoring Clark's Fall? With <laughs> a big roaring Clark's <laughs> Fall. Actually, I mean, I, you know, I mean, Kevin Smith is very film literate. It wouldn't so, surprise I mean, me. I wouldn't see, yeah, I know. That in would a weird be quite way. interesting, actually. Yeah. yeah. But. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, the thing I know about this series is that apparently it's a sequel to the Film Nation, film nation series He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Okay. So, I mean, what I know about Masters of the Universe extends to the 1987 film with Frank Langella as God, Skeletor, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, Dolph Lundgren as yeah. He-Man, which had the score by Bill Conti, very much post-Star Wars Bill's yeah. score by Bill Conti, which was terrific. But that's as far as my, you know, I ain't got a casual knowledge of He-Man. I know other people that know a lot more about it. I follow Grumpy Skeletor on Twitter. <laughs> Are you familiar with Grumpy Skeletor? Oh, Sean. Honestly, right. it's... it's is, va- is this my midnight run? <laughs> yeah, 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 maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Grumpy Skeletor yeah. is basically this guy who tweets as Skeletor just constantly calling He-Man a bellend, basically. <laughs> uh, it, is, it is truly hilarious. NSFW, guys, yeah. but truly yeah, hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, for, for, Ameri- for American audiences, the word bellend is not a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 no. It's a British phrase out it, it is. Point that out. It's a British uh, guy. It's, it, it's it, so good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna have to follow that. Yeah, yeah please do. I mean, yeah. I mean, on the... Um, yeah, I mean, it's so... I mean, the only thing I know about this was that it was what they now call review-bombed on Rotten Tomatoes, which is that the critics really like the series and the fans hated it because of the way that it, that it treats He-Man what happens with the character of He-Man I think Skeletor as well I won't give it away uh, for those who haven't seen it yet but that generated a lot of controversy with okay. diehard fans and they, they basically pumped a load of very negative reviews into because obviously you have user reviews on Rotten Tomatoes as well it's an aggregate thing mm. and that's what I know about it but it, it's had very good write-ups it's had very good write-ups of Bear McCreary's um, music 
and it's not hard to see why. I mean, there, I mean, there's, there's a lot of music it being a series, yeah. and yeah. this is what they do now. They tend to go like episode by episode, don't they? Releasing a, yeah, lot, yeah. a lot of score. Um, you know, back in the 1990s, you'd often struggle to get a Jerry Goldsmith score that was above 30 minutes. God, yeah, yeah. And now you've got everything. It's embarrassment at Richie's now, isn't it? It's pretty good. Yeah, it's gone the other way. So yeah, you maybe get too much sometimes, don't you? I know. Like, like with, yeah. the, with these episode ones, it's a bit. I was, you know, I mean, much as the One Division stuff was good, I don't know if I needed like 40 minutes per episode. That's more than the actual episode sometimes. Know, the l- yeah. lengthy episode. Do you know what I mean? I was a bit like, oh, I don't know. You kind of want a curated highlight. Yeah, thing. That's a little what you bit. Want. But then obviously certain scores need to be expanded. Yeah, uh, yeah, oh yeah. Obviously, I'm not... depending on the yeah, genre. Definitely. But, I mean... For the most part, it's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, again, there's a lot of gods. There's a lot of like, quasar like, rock elements. I mean, um, ben, ben McCreary has... Has always had that experience. Text. Did you hear his score for the Child's Play remake from a couple of years ago? I didn't. know, no. Which had he's done quite a bit of horror stuff, hasn't he? He's done he, like a Death Day, Happy Death, Death Day, Day and, and he stuff did like Freaky that. recently. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, Child's Play had all the children's instruments. It was based like a macabre children's lullaby using children's right. toys for the oh, instruments. Wow, okay. And he has got that very experimental, witty air to it. Yeah. There's a lot of like strange flourishes in this. There's a lot of like almost like thrash rock elements at times, which. Mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, there's a lot of music. I haven't got through all of it. I kind of listened to enough of it to kind of get the measure of it. Mm, mm. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I really, I really like the, just the fulsome, thematically bold statement. I mean, again, I would, because that's my kind of score. Yeah, that's the score yeah. that I like. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's inevitable, really. No, I, I, I got a lot out of it. I, I really liked it. I, uh, I, I, I thought it, it was, it was, it was a definably McCreary score, yes. and I like that. I like the fact now he's become one of those composers that you can hear him. You can hear him in what he does, whether no, no matter what he's covering, and that's great. That's a mark of a of a, of a potential great that is, because he's. And we've said before how we really big fans of his, and we're really impressed with what he's doing. And yeah. he's he doesn't really put a foot wrong, for the most part, you know. And and again, I think I, I don't know if I'm honest. I'm going to watch the show. <laughs> I'm, I'll stick with Grumpy Skeletor <laughs> but yeah. yeah I thoroughly enjoyed this and so thanks for recommending it oh, yeah. yeah yeah I mean I, I think it's good to try and get a multiplicity of different shows films out there as, as much yeah. as possible and it's good to draw attention to Baron Crew's music because he doesn't get he doesn't get attached to projects with artistic prestige. I mean, let's face it, no one was looking to Godzilla, King of the Monsters for Oscars. No, no. Uh, well, actually, I, I worry some people probably were. Yeah, actually, <laughs> probably, actually, yeah, yeah. To be like, but, no. I mean, that was just a gigantic score. I mean, the use of that the choir amazing. amazing. I loved it. Loved that score. Yeah. I don't think Master of the Universe is quite in that realm. No, um, no. But it's not far off. No. Mm-hmm. It's not quite up there, but... Yeah, it's pretty damn good. So, yeah, awesome, awesome, good one. Two, maybe, a, I'll be honest, a bit of a disappointment for me. Let's move on and talk about Reminiscence, which is the uh, the new film that's out, uh, written and directed by Lisa Joy, known more for Westworld uh, and being partner of Jonathan Nolan and in, in, in what he, what, what, uh, he does. And he produces this, but she's written and directed this. Starring Hugh Jackman, Rebecca Ferguson. The film, though, I haven't seen. I, I, I was going to go and see it, and it's, it's obviously quite a, uh, a, a sort of modern, futuristic sort of noir uh, about a man who uses a machine that sees people's memories to find, try and find his missing love. It has bombed, like, spectacularly. Mo- quite a few people who, I mean, we, we've got a review... Uh, of it on Real Talk however that we made this show and the guys who went to see it uh, and talked about it were so excited for ages and they were really disappointed I think oh, and that's no. the general gist of it 
don't know if you've seen it. I will watch it because I like what I like Westworld and what Lisa Joy does. I like all the people in it. But I didn't love Jawadi's work on this, and I was I was a bit disappointed because you know I, I I do like I do like him. I think his Game of Thrones stuff is fantastic. I think he's most of his Westworld stuff's really good. I don't know. I just felt like this was a bit all over the place, and it it, it I understood what he was trying to do with a score that was was aiming for more of that noir feel, but oh, just it didn't click with me. I'm afraid. What, what did you think? See, I'm going to do completely the inverse. I'm generally not a fan of Javadi. I actually <laughs> quite like this film, um, despite the fact. Fair that enough. I, yeah, I, despite the fact that I've not seen Reminiscence, which I keep wanting to call Evanescence. I don't know why. That's that's a callback. There you go. That is a callback. We're showing our age. We are now. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I don't know why that 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 keeps happening, but yeah. I mean, um, Evan, yeah, and it, it's one of those things, I haven't seen the film. You can call it Evanescence yeah, again. Yeah, I was, was going to call it Evanescence. <laughs> and I, I was also... I'm, I, Just call it that. Just call yeah, it that. I mean, I also, on our, on our Frame to Frame podcast that we do elsewhere, I, I, I referred to Hugh Jackman as Jack Hugeman. <laughs> and I keep wanting to call him Jack Hugeman now. Like Jack Hugeman in Evanescence. Um, I, 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 create, I, I created him as the um, Huge Yakman, which was a, which was a, a cat... <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was basically him playing a... a a, like a mammoth, like a lost yeti sort of character, the huge yakman. Huge yakman. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen the yakman anywhere? <laughs> there he is. Yeah. <laughs> Swarm with the Aussie accent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I, like, I like Hugh Jackman. I think he's a terrific actor. Yeah. And it's a shame this movie was obviously front loaded with prestige, with real pedigree, and it obviously hasn't worked at all. I read somewhere online that it maybe had the worst box office opening ever. Really? Or, or maybe for a film One of, of them, this ilk. Of that yeah. calibre. I mean, it's not good given those who are involved in making it. I, I'm not familiar with Westworld. I've never seen Westworld. I've seen the original film. I've not seen mm. the, the series. But, um, I mean, I, I thought Javadi's work was interesting. I mean, obviously, from what I've read of it, it's a very, very overcooked noir pastiche movie in which, you know, the, you know, the mystery is the recesses of one's mind. I mean, it sounds very derivative of Inception, if I'm being completely... It sounds very... And, and to be fair, I did feel... I did hear Inception in this score. Yes, I did as oh, well. I, I mean, yeah. it's not nearly as good, because that's a masterpiece, that score. Mm. But, yeah, I, I, I definitely got Inception vibes. So the film maybe goes down that route. I mean, well. yeah, I mean, the, the, the composer can only work with the material that they're given, and certainly the more mellow parts of Inception with those very low strumming electric guitars mm-hmm. during the exposition sequences. A lot of reminiscent sounds like that. Yeah. But I think Javadi has got a background. I mean, there were lots of this that, that reminded me of his first Iron Man score. A lot mm, of the, yeah, the, the thrash, the aggressive rock elements yeah. of it. I mean, there are some really beautiful, again, funnily enough, what like we mentioned earlier with The Courier and Arbol Korsiniovsky, there are lots of bits in the score for reminiscence that have waltzes. Like very mm, useful, like waltz-like idioms, which I wasn't expecting to hear at all. But I mean, it's it's broken up somewhat weirdly. The needle drops in it, which are performed by Rebecca Ferguson. You've got Rebecca Ferguson performing various like yeah. music hall and pop staples, which actually breaks the album up. Often that's a bit of a risk with a film score, but it works. I think in this, I think it works rather well. I think that the the final movement of the score, the final three tracks, are very emotional. Mm. actually very powerful would that I knew what actually was happening in the film but I mean you could probably get an idea from the track titles maybe but yeah I I, I thought I'm not again I'm not a huge fan of Javadi outside of Game of Thrones I think you know a lot of this stuff I find quite underwhelming I thought this was one of his better more angular and sort of tonally interesting works it's not a masterpiece but 
you know, it's. I mean, obviously, he's got a great creative collabor- collab- uh, collaborative partnership with Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan of Westworld because he obviously did the scores for Westworld, as you said. But yeah, yeah. I, I think the experimentation side of him is something definitely that's there mm. because with Westworld, he does a lot of adapting uh, well-known songs and he puts them in an orchestral instrumental vein mm. for Westworld, and that's become a bit of a staple of that show. And and it, I think may, this might I suspect I will I will quite enjoy that film to some extent I think maybe more than and it might end up a bit of a cult thing that film it mm-hmm. might end up one of those things that bombed but actually people start to go actually this is better than that everyone said yeah and I, I think I think the the music might be better once I I might enjoy this more once I've seen the movie so I, I will I will come back to it because I do want to give Javadi the benefit of the day I want to give everyone involved in this the benefit of the day yeah. because all of the people involved I like and I like what they do, so I, I am I am looking forward to seeing the film, despite the bad reviews and the terrible box office. So yeah, I'll come back to it. I'll come back to this one definitely. Mm. We've got one more modern score to talk about before we call it a day. But before then, I'm going to uh, go into my retro pick, which is uh, an old school classic of sorts uh, in terms of a movie, uh, 1974's adaptation of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. Um, with a score by Richard Rodney Bennett, which I absolutely fell in love with when I saw this movie. And I saw this movie not too long ago because, uh, as I've probably mentioned before, I'm writing a book on Sean Connery and his yeah. career and everything. And I, I watched this film and he's only in it. For, he's not in a lot of it. He just comes on with his big moustache and says a few uh, says a few things to... Uh, Does he only have a little cameo? Yeah. Yeah. What a shame. What a shame. (laughs) He just plays a a colonel and he's one of the suspects. Now, I don't know if you've seen, read this story or you've seen the other film, the other movie, Um, but obviously the the whodunit is quite different with this story. Um, I won't ruin whodunit, but it's interesting, to say the least. And this, I, I think, I mean, this film has an amazing cast like they all do, but it has, like... I mean, whoever thought casting Albert Finney as Poirot was a good idea was 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 bonkers. Because he's a great actor, but his his accent makes Kenneth Branagh look like you know <laughs> most subtle thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Finney, yeah. Finney's like this all through the film, you know. And it's it's <laughs> Branagh at least heard a little bit more of the you know. I mean, it's nothing. It's not as good as his Russian in Tenet, you know, <laughs> as we know. Do you know what happens when the cultural balls are on the <laughs> Okay, fine. I mean, I'm stepping into a bomb film. Yeah, okay, yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, <laughs> and I, I actually think I liked he, Branagh's version of this story better than this film, actually, even though mm. it was directed by Sidney Lumet, and it's and it's got a great cast and things like that. Anyway, it's very talky, but the music I thought was fantastic. I, it was it was a real mixture of very lyrical, beautiful sort of movement, and also a very sort of 1920s jazzy kind of you know, flappers and all that kind of yeah. stuff going on. It, it, I, I particularly loved how he manages to match the, the actual sound of a train moving out of a station to yes. the way he, he orchestrates. Yeah. I thought that was a stroke of genius because I, I could literally hear the... Yeah, yeah, in how he, rhythmic progression. Yeah, brilliant, yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. brilliant and, yeah. and, and very hard to do and make look easy. I, what do you think of this? I mean, this is an old school movie cracking score for me I, I, I'm delighted you picked this because I haven't listened to this score in a very long time I think Richard Rodney Bennett is one of those 
composers who really flies under the radar despite all the stuff that he's done you think of like far from the madding crowd and and things i'm really delighted you picked this because i think it's brilliant it's mm. a brilliant score i really i think i like the film more than more than more than you do but i mean yeah i mean the cast lauren bacall i did enjoy it. sean connery great yeah. cast and john gilgood vanessa redgrave michael york and c perkins i mean it's amazing amazing yeah um but i i love rodney bennett's score because i think it's it, I mean, it's always a bit of a tricky thing drawing comparisons between different scores. But if you were to compare this to the Patrick Doyle score for the Branner version, Patrick Doyle is obviously a fabulous composer as mm. well. Doyle's score, I think, was much more kind of like functional. Again, like yeah, I yeah. mentioned earlier, with with, yeah. with a killer final um, uh, track called Justice. This score by Richard Rodney Bennett is more instrumentally interesting and diverse all the way through. And I think it's got the better theme. I mean, the theme for the train, which I think Richard Rodney Bennett described in the album notes as trashy. Like, they're really trashy. I'm like, okay, maybe really? you wow, tongue okay. cheek. Yeah. I'm like, it's not trashy. Really? Not at all, no. It's brilliant. Really elegant and fantastic. Yeah. I mean, this might be one of the two greatest golden age of steam scores. I mean, this and maybe Jerry Goldsmith's The Great Train Robbery, which was a few years yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, could, I think you could probably hear that Jerry Goldsworth was it was inspired by Rodney Bennett's work yeah, on this. I think so. But there are, I mean, you've got the train also theme. starring Sean Connery. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a period so, theme and Donald, Donald Sutherland, isn't it? Yeah, right. and and you know that's got a really lovely, sumptuous, elegant classicism as this score does. But I mean, there are, I mean, you've got the there are different themes in Bennett's score. I mean, you've got the overture, which almost sounds like it's evoking silent cinema with very powerful piano chords like deliberately melodramatic then you've got the murder thing with his oh, very oh that's amazing it's really chilling isn't it's it? really scary yeah, yeah. it's really it's undulating and dark high strings and yeah, yeah it's terrifying I, I, brilliant brilliant sequence I mean just the instrumental variation you've got bits of jazz you've got very interesting like percussive elements which sound like tribal percussion or maybe yeah. a marimba or maybe a glockenspiel I mean the score jumps around it's only 40 minutes long on yeah, the album yeah. but it jumps around all over the place but it's it's really instrumentally creative it packs a hell of a lot in mm, and that mm. finale which sends you off with the final flourish of the train yeah, yeah, theme, yeah. it's kind of like, right we've taken you on a journey through this extraordinary murder mystery written by Agatha Christie let's throw you out the other side just absolutely exhilarating yeah, definitely. It's, it's a great score it's brilliant it's absolutely wonderful yeah. and and I mean I would encourage anyone to watch the film because yeah. it is good don't get me wrong um, but it, it's not my favourite adaptation but it, it, the music is yeah wonderful so uh and he got he was nominated for an Oscar for that for that score as well. Didn't win, I don't think, but he was nominated. That, that, so that would be nineteen seventy four. So Jerry Goldsmith would be nominated for Chinatown. I think The Godfather Part Two. Nina Rota got that. Oh, I can't I can't begrudge that if I'm honest. It's quite a stiff competition, <laughs> That's the, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, can't begrudge that at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, 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 definitely. That's all. I will. We'll put some of the uh, some of these themes in, in the Spotify playlist. Yeah. It's all on there, and it's wonderful. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, finally then, uh, we'll we'll talk about the last big score of the month uh, and we will play you out with a little bit of this afterwards. Uh, but this is The Suicide Squad by John Murphy for the James Gunn's new um, DC EU sort of uh, adaptation, <laughs> sort of, if there is such a thing yeah. anymore, adaptation of uh, the Suicide, Suicide Squad comics. Um, so, you know, it's Harley Quinn and, and all of these people just causing mayhem. Now, I have been vocal on podcasts before about how much I loathed the previous Suicide Squad movie by David Ayer, which I thought was awful. An ugly, noisy piece of rubbish. This was a delight, I thought. I absolutely loved this. And I I do like James Gunn, and I like what he's done with Guardians, and he's basically transplanted Guardians of the Galaxy with a harder aesthetic 
and he's done the same thing basically for this. I I thought it worked. I thought it was funny, really funny. I thought it was exciting. I thought it was ridiculous. A bit long. Could have shaved a bit off. I could I could have probably cut out all the Harley Quinn, you know, loved up with a dictator stuff. I could have got rid of all that. But I think it was it was a lot of fun. And I really like Murphy's work on this. I think he I think he comes up with a real thumping sense of rebellious edge to what he does and you know obviously it's in in the vein of stuff he's done before like involved in kick-ass and that kind of thing you know and, and even like 28 days like days later and you can hear though the same kind of yeah. stuff in there flourishes, flourishes. Yeah. um yeah. but uh yeah i really like this I, I, what do you think are you are you as big a fan of the film did you like the score I, I really like the score. I think it's interesting that it's almost an inverse to the situation with Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, in Guardians of the Galaxy, the needle drop, the pop and rock tracks were really what sang, although Tyler Bates did two really fine scores for both of those films for James Gunn, but it was the needle drops that worked. Yeah. You think of like Red Bones, Come and Get Your Love at the beginning of the oh, yeah. first film, or, you know, Mr. Blue Sky by ELO at the beginning of the second one yeah. or something. But that's what resonated in, in Guardians of the Galaxy. In this, it was the other way around. I thought the score was actually stronger than the needle drops felt a bit... Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, Which is odd, isn't it? I mean, it's weird how that works. But I thought John Murphy's score was one of the better elements of the film, which I have mm. to say I had mixed feelings okay. over. I, 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 did, I did think I'd end up enjoying it a lot more than I did. And it, it's a complicated one. I mean, uh, I mean clearly... It's better than the than the first Suicide Squad movie. That's an unbelievably low bar. To set. That's really not <laughs> it, it really no, it really is. <laughs> Anything yeah. stepping on your own foot is better <laughs> than, than watching the previous Suicide You're Squad. You're very film. very right. Yeah, I very mean, true. but the, the the problem that I have is that it's essentially the same thing, but just done with a director who has got an anarchic sensibility. I mean, he has James Gunner's background in trauma and like splattery gore yeah. effects. There's a lot of that in here. But what you basically get for me is a very, very corporate studio-mandated version of Anarchy. It's kind of, right, okay, we're going to let something go a bit crazy and a bit wacky. Then we'll follow up with a scene that's very much cut from, like, a superhero franchise club. Then we'll go a bit wacky again. And it's like, Mm. what I would have liked is for this to have been a a low-budget, independent movie that could have gone genuinely quite, quite weird. Um, But obviously, you need to paint it on a big scale. You need visual effects. You need big actors. And, I mean, this film has, has bombed. It's not done very well at all. Yeah, bizarrely, in a way, I yeah. think. Don't you? I mean, in in the, it, I get it in some ways, but in another, I, I this should have done better because it has it has recognisable actors. It, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, it's weird, isn't it? it, it in, is it just because it's DC in a way? You know, is there a lingering effect of? Some of the because Birds of Prey didn't do great either with Margot Robbie in as, as Harley Quinn. Yeah. Do people just not want to see that character? You know, what, what do I don't mean? know. Well, she's part of the ensemble in this, so I don't yeah. know if it's that. I reckon it's the proximity to the previous film. The previous film took a lot of money and it won an Oscar, which I think a lot of people forget about. Oh, the first yeah, film. My, my mate Brooker, who loves that film to bits, yeah. likes to rub that in my face yeah. frequently. He goes, You do know this is an Oscar winning film. I'm like, Whatever. <laughs> no, it's it won for like, you know, best yeah. toenail clippings or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know? But I think the problem with this one is that it's it's too in in people's minds it's too close to the previous one. Despite the fact the previous one took a lot of money, everyone hated it. No one's saying you know apart from your mate Brooker that it, that it's a great film. And I think people <laughs> He'll defend would, it to the hill. <laughs> yeah, I think people get confused with this one. It's like why would I go and see this Suicide Squad when I know that the previous one 
came out five or six years ago and it wasn't very good. I don't think that's helped the which, situation. Which is a shame because they yeah. are effectively... I mean, there's the barest of tethers. You know, mm. you've, you've, brought, you've got maybe half a dozen characters in it. You know, two in particular maybe who return from that film of any real note, mm. who play any real note, which is Viola Davis and Margot Robbie. Yeah. But they might as well be two separate films. They might as well not even be connected in a franchise, really, mightn't they? Because they're so... Divorced. It's not a sequel, really. But that is I, it. I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? It's like, is it a sequel? Is it a reboot? Does it have continuity with the other ones? Because you've got some characters that were in the previous one. And other yeah. Characters not. I think the, the the IP. I hate using this phrase. The IP of this new film isn't clear enough. And yeah. It, no, given, I get that. You know the pandemic circumstances and the circumstances with streaming. Mm. Audiences need a very very clear IP. Now it's like, why, why do I need to go and see this? What is it? Yeah. You know, is it is it is it tethered to the previous film? Is it on its own? And I think people were just confused by it. the streaming situation. With HBO Max has cut into the business and hasn't helped mm. multiplicity of reasons. But obviously, the reason we're talking about it is John Murphy's score, which I think is one of the better elements of the film. Mm. I think that I interviewed John Murphy about this, and he he really praised James Gunn's musical intuition, which I think is already pretty obvious. Mm. Um, whatever else you say about James Gunn, but. Yeah, the idea of, um, you know, it's got that that almost like operatic rock sensibility to a lot of it, which is, you know, captures the grungy, punky, anarchic aesthetic of, of the Suicide Squad. But he also spoke about, you know, deliberately offsetting the music with, with you know, against very perverse, surreal scenes. I mean, noticeably the climax with the ratism mm, track. Mm. And he said, yeah, it's always great to confound one's expectations with music. And I think... There's a lot of this score which is very beautiful and very tender, and I think that that was very interesting. I mean, it's a more di- tonally diverse score than I was expecting it to be, um, and it gets some kind of pathos with the characters, some lovely choral work as well as some very eerie mm-hmm. choral work. I, I I really like the score. There's a lovely Alan Silvestri style military like brass anthem as well. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I thought the score was that was actually really terrific. I thought it it, it worked very well in the film. Um, it works very well away from the film as well. It's a mm. challenging listen at times, but yeah, I'm, I'm parts of it. That. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then some of it, it's got some great themes in it. It's got some really nice tracks. Um, yeah, I, I, I de- yeah, I definitely like the film more than you. But I, I can see, I can see where you're coming from with that. Definitely, mm. and it, it's, it's a, it's, a, it's not like an amazing piece of work. It's not an amazing score, but it's, it's good. You know, it's very good, and and it, it's, it fits the film. I think in, in very well. It's, I mean, it's not up there. I mean, you look at like 28 Days Later or Sunshine, which feel like John Murphy's like really pivotal work. Sunshine Danny was really Bob. good. Yeah, yeah. Daggio yeah. and D Minor, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And both of those films, I think, demonstrates what happens when the composer plays against the expectations or the conventions of the scene. Because I, I asked him about the In the House in a Heartbeat cue from 28 Days Later, the really mm. famous like, bit of music. And he said, yeah, the conventional thing would have been to have scored that final sequence from 28 Days Later in a way that was scary. But no, what you get is a build. You get a a build towards a sudden stop. And the moment that the music stops is the moment that tells you that the characters have kind of realised something about each other. And it's, it's that sense of build. Something might potentially be about to get worse. And then it stops and it's all about spotting and the use of build, the use mm. of tone in music, which I think he does very, very well in Suicide Squad. I'm bearing in mind, this is his first score for over 10 years. Yeah, wow, really? Which is, which is really fascinating. I, I didn't ask him about that. I didn't ask him about what his absence was, but what the reason for that was. But um, wow. he's a very distinctive composer. He is. Obviously, is it? Yeah. He is. You can, you, again, I can always sort of, 
like, oh, that sounds like John Murphy. Yeah, which is amazing. If you've been away for 10 years and you still have that quite distinctive sound, that's yeah. excellent, yeah. So hopefully he'll do more. You know, hopefully he'll, he'll, you know, come back. If they do Suicide Squad 2 or whatever it is, which I doubt now, <laughs> given, yeah. the, given the box yeah, office, yeah. Um, you know, and he's going to be busy making Guardians films and then, you know, who knows what after that for Marvel. So we will see, I suppose. Um, but no, it's it's been a it's been a funny month, hasn't it? What would you of all of the ones we've talked about? What would you say your your favourite is? Would you reckon for the overall for the mm, month? I mean, you're you're going to hate me. I'm going to go Midnight Runner. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that cheating? Is that you're not allowed. Yeah, I'm not you're allowed. not allowed. I mean, it would have to be Jungle Cruise. Yeah, I mean, that's the film that, that I my sensibility lean more towards that kind yeah. of um, score. I mean, I really like the Suicide Squad as well. I do, I do really like that one. But how about you? I'm gonna go for the Courier for the mm. reasons I mentioned before, just because it was such a sumptuous listen. But yeah, Jungle Cruise was great, um, and I uh, yeah, I did like I did like Suicide Squad as well. But yeah, uh, yeah I'll, I'll say I'll say the Courier. But yeah, not a bad month. We've had better months for new music, but I think you know we've got some interesting stuff to come. Next next month we've got uh, Candyman, uh, which will be interesting. We've got Shang Chi. Yeah. Uh, we've got um, stuff like or, or, it's a bit of a lower key month in a way. We've got things like um, Respect herself, you know, Gunpowder Milkshake from less well known composers, people like Natalie Holt, Chris Bowers, who we talked about recently before. So yeah, it, we, we there's no on the on the list of potentials that we've got next month unless we throw anything else in there. There's not a massive amount of famous names. I mean, so, I have seen Candyman, so I've heard that score in context. Mm. So I will be able, will be able to, I'll be able be to, to talk about that. I mean, Natalie Holt has obviously just done Loki. Yeah, she's that. That's really good. So yeah, so, so it'll be interesting. Mm. Maybe some, and then you know, we because we're, we're about a month or two away from some big guns, things like Bond mm. and Dune and that kind of yeah. thing. So that that will be that will be exciting. But uh, yeah, we've got some interesting stuff to come over the next few months. So it's going to be an exciting time. So yeah. Great stuff, Sean. Cheers. That's the show. Do you want to just remind everyone where they can find you then online before we before we head off? Yes, you can find me on Instagram at Seano34 and on Twitter at Seano22. So yeah, give me hit me up and give me a follow. Yeah, so, um, let us know what you think about what we've talked about and what your favourite scores are and things like that. Yeah, and I'll post updates on, on my book up there as yeah, well. Yeah, do so, it. Um, Go for so, it. Yeah, all, all of that will be online. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. For sure. Mm. Um, our Twitter is btw underscore notes um, and you can find us on the We Made This Network at wmt underscore network and me at AJ Black Writer on Twitter. Uh, and you'll find links to all the things I'm doing. But um, thanks for joining us for another episode. Uh, Remember, as I say, we're part of the We Made This Podcast Network. Please subscribe to Between the Notes. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to help help out the network, please consider supporting us on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash we made this. But film and TV music is not all we're discussing, so we'll give you a taste of what you might have missed on the network in a minute. But we'll play you out with another track from John Murphy's The Suicide Squad. Uh, And until next time, we hope you enjoy the film music we've discussed. You stay safe and well, and we'll see you next time discussing the music of film and television between the notes.
elsewhere on We Made This. Frame to frame. Being John Malkovich, I think is probably the most original film I will ever see because I had absolutely no idea what was going to come next. Then when it did come, I was like, okay, right, that makes sense. Well, it makes sense being a loaded term <laughs> in the context of this film. Well, yeah, yeah. In, in any other film, it'd be ridiculous. Like, oh, what, we're suddenly going through uh, John Malkovich's subconscious whilst one person's trying to shoot another. Like, it's ridiculous, <laughs> but it makes sense within the context of the film. I pretty much agree with, with everything that you were saying about it being the exploitation of celebrity. That was my my sort of big takeaway. And the thing I was I was thinking, oh yes, I'll be able to say this on the podcast and it will sound smart, was that they get their 15 minutes of fame. But Oh, so sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this is the beauty of us not talking about ahead of time, right? Yeah, yeah, is it? Pick a disc. Was that kind of your entry into music as well? So did you learn a lot about music because of your, what your parents' records collection was then? Or? Oh, of course. They were they were the first DJs in my life. I mean, <laughs> you know, what they listened to was gospel to me. And then I started learning my own music through listening to albums on, on the radio, listening to stuff uh, that my friends would dub, a cassette copy. Oh, you got to hear this album. They would dub a couple songs and make mixtapes. And then passing mixtapes around between friends to kind of introduce each other to new bands. But the bands that I listened to in my youngest years, my childhood, are the ones that I still look back at with just some... Because they helped really shape and form who I am as a music fan. Rarely Going, an animated Star Trek podcast. They've gone through that script and went, yep that's fine and that's been approved by you know the executive producers the writing room there's a lot of people that have had to go through this episode before it's got to air and you know the fact that they can have something like that where it can be a little bit self-critical of the thing is 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 good you know star trek can often be classes taking itself a little bit too seriously um and i think something like that you know the fact that people go yeah you know what that's, that's fair point fair point and they're probably you know people are aware of the criticism the positive things you know people are, are basing star trek around, around a lot of some of these decisions and and leaning into that so i think that you know it shows that the writers are are self-aware certainly and you know that that also extends out with the the lower decks kind of writing room too yeah fair check out all of these shows and more on the we made this podcast network between the notes is produced and edited by tony black who hosts alongside sean wilson you can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening.